Okay, Shannon, we're going live. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. We are live. And I'm going to let the uh, intro run for a couple minutes for people to, to come in. Dice que hay tres. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you doing? Um, thank you for participating. Uh, we're going to give everyone about three or four more minutes to join, and then we're going to start with uh, with Miss O'Neill. Okay, we're going to start three minutes. I'm going to give uh, up until um, two minutes. It's 12.05, we're going to start.
Good afternoon. Welcome to the 12th edition of the Panama interview series, where we discuss topics regarding foreign direct investment in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, thank you to each of you that is in attendance. Uh, we are streaming live from the capital city of the Republic of Panama. Uh, the Panama interview series is produced by Bico Legal and Compliance Consulting, LLC, a Miami domiciled limited liability corporation with offices in downtown Miami in Panama City, Panama. We provide international, commercial, and transactional legal and regulatory compliance advice and related services to manufacturers and brand owners that seek to boost profit and hedge domestic risk through international distribution in the USA and in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, today's edition of the Panama interview series is provided in affiliation with YK Law, LOP. YK Law is a United States law firm operating with offices in New York City Los Angeles, Irvine, San Francisco, Dallas, Miami, Florida, and most recently in Panama City, Panama. My name is Anthony Robinson. I am the managing member of Vico Legal and Compliance Consulting and of counsel with YK Law. Uh, and I head YK Law's Latin American and Caribbean practice. Uh, in this edition of the Panama interview series, we will discuss the impact that climate change and the current global supply chain disruptions will have on the post-COVID economic recovery of Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, to that end, we are honored to have Shannon K. O'Neill as our guest today. Uh, Ms. O'Neill is the Vice President, Deputy Director of Studies, and Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, she is an expert on Latin America, global trade, U.S.-Mexico relations, Corruption, Democracy, and Immigration. Shannon is the author of the forthcoming book, The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter, which chronicles the rise of three main global manufacturing and supply chain hubs and what they mean for U.S. economic competitiveness. Uh, we have a number of topics to, get, uh, to cover today, so we are gonna hold Q&A until the end. Let's jump in. Shannon, how are you doing? I'm good. Hello from New York City. Look forward to joining you in Panama in about a week. <laughs> that's right. You're going to be down here for the Bloomberg Gateway series. Very good. And that's going to be uh, streaming live from uh, from Panama the 18th and the 19th of May. Exactly. Next Wednesday and Thursday. Okay. So, and I speak on the first panel. So if you want to hear more of what I have to say, you can you can tune in there. <laughs> and what's going to be your area there for the series? Is it going to be supply chains? Uh, you know, the first panel we're going to talk a lot about with my with my other uh, fellow panelists. We're going to talk about what all the changes in it have meant for Latin America. So whether it's the Ukraine or U.S.-China relations or climate change, all these big changes and what it means. Well, uh, we're looking forward to following you there, and it's really an honor to have you here with us today. Congratulations on your new book, book. Yep. and uh, I understand it's scheduled to come out in October. Is that correct? It is indeed, yes. Okay, and uh, we are looking forward to, uh, to getting a copy. Um, so tell us about the globalization myth and why you authored the book. You know, I started looking into some of these issues almost five years ago, and I was doing a CFR, the Council of Foreign Relations, where I work. We do these task forces where we take on big global issues, and one that we were taking on at the time was North America and what, what one should think about North America and what it means for the United States. And the book came out of when I was looking at lots of the economic data, I was looking at trade and foreign direct investment and bank loans and royalties and patents and the movement of people and ideas. 
as I was looking at these figures, uh, I saw that one, yes, indeed, North America was integrated in about 40, 45% of trade and all of these things between goes between the three countries of Mexico, the United States and Canada. Um, but I also saw that when you look more broadly around the world, that both Asia and Europe were more integrated than North America. And so, you know, we see discrepancies there. And then when you look at Latin America, it is much less integrated. When you look at all this economic data, only about 20, 25% of the trade goes between Latin American nations rather than with nations elsewhere in the world. So I saw this as a real puzzle that you have very different levels of integration or regionalization and wanted to, to dive more into it. And so that's where the book, the idea of the book first came from. And when did you start the project? How long did it take you to? It took me about four or five years. And I remember when I first started talking with people about it, I told them, you know, I want to look at the history of supply chains and how they were built up. And of course, you know, Back then, in you know the 2017, 2018, nobody cared about supply chains, and so really, what it wasn't they weren't so excited about it. I have to say, now people are a little bit more interested, right? We know, it's, we all know what a supply chain now. is and when it doesn't work. So, so it has been an interesting journey. Right. Well, in the fourth quarter of last year, we saw the images on the covers of national periodicals of packed and backlogged U.S. ports and empty U.S. store shelves that were emblematic of the consequences of the global uh, supply chain disruptions that we were experiencing at the time. Uh, while COVID-19 uh, clearly was a proximate cause of the supply chain disruptions, experts instruct that the root cause of the disruptions were long-standing structural vulnerabilities in modern supply chains. So I have two questions in that regard. Uh, what were the root causes of the supply chain disruptions in 2021? And what is the current state of global supply chains now? So I'd say when you had sort of three big hits to supply chains in 2020, 2021, right, with COVID and, and with all the ramifications. So one was on physical supply, right? We saw cities shut down. We saw airports close. We saw ports become much more difficult to get in and out as COVID protocols happened, as people got sick and the like. So one was just moving things. The supply changed with COVID restrictions. The second thing we saw, and particularly as you get into 2021, is we saw demand change. So you not only have a supply shock, you have a demand shock. And especially, you know, in the United States, but in many places around the world, people started buying different things, right? They stopped buying, you know, suitcases and business clothes, and they started buying computers and loungewear. Um, mm -hmm. And they also bought a lot more of things because they were no longer going out to restaurants or traveling. And so they had more money. And especially in the U.S. where you had a big stimulus package, they had more money to spend on physical goods. Uh, and so if you look at 2021, U.S. consumers bought almost a trillion dollars more of physical goods than they had in 2020. So there was a huge demand. And then the other thing that you saw was a logistics shock. So, you know, ships were on the wrong side of the ocean in terms of where the goods were and where they were going. Uh, you know, airplanes, which carry about 50 percent of the value of goods around the world. Many of them were grounded because passengers weren't flying. So you saw a real shift. So there's three different big shocks that happened. And you know, we we all know the challenges. We know the the you know the shelves that were empty or the things that we couldn't get, the furniture you ordered that didn't show up for eight or ten months. But overall, I have to say, I actually think global supply chains held up pretty well, given you had a supply shock, a demand shock, and a logistics shock. So have we uh, are we past all of the worst of it and somewhat back to normal, or no? 
Well, as we all know, we're not, right? So, or if you read the news, we're not. You know, you see right. today, uh, you know, workers in Shanghai and, and Beijing and many other you know, Chinese cities are now in their own lockdown. So you're not seeing factories running in, in lots of places in China. One estimate I saw almost 40% of China's GDP is under some sort of partial or full lockdown. Uh, we've had a war between the Ukraine and Russia, which have also uh, changed supply chains. There, you know, rails aren't moving in and out of Russia. Not, you know, boats aren't moving in and out of the port of Odessa and other places. Planes are going around that airspace. So you see lots of shocks, too, from that side. Uh, and, you know, you still are working through some of the shifts in demand and logistics that were there from the beginning. So I think some things have gotten better, but we've also seen a piling on of new factors. So um, so we are going to see pretty rough seas, I think, for our supply chains throughout the rest of this year in 2022. Well, Latin America and the Caribbean is, uh, you know, is trying to grow its way out of the recession caused by COVID-19. And nearshoring initiatives promise to play a key role in the recovery efforts. However, President Biden has instructed U.S. government agencies to identify strategies to revitalize and rebuild domestic manufacturing capacity by bringing jobs overseas back to the United States, or in other words, by reshoring. How will the Biden administration's reshoring policies affect Latin America and the Caribbean's ability to use nearshoring to recover economically from the pandemic? So I think there is a big opportunity for Latin America. And one thing we have seen over the last almost decade um, is a moving around of supply chains. And partly that's before COVID. So partly there are a lot of factors that started changing in the 2010s uh, that made it more attractive to produce things in different places than before. You look at the 1990s, 2000s, you know, China just had a huge uh, excess of labor. It was low cost labor and the customization, these big you know, economies of scale and things really mattered for goods. And you started to see a change of that. You see automation becoming increasingly important. So wage price wage, rates are less important relatively than they, perhaps they were in the past. Um, you start seeing, you know, next day delivery, people expecting with Amazon, people expecting everything on their doorstep right away. And so long lead times across the Pacific Ocean in terms of, you know, on container ships and the like are less uh, profitable than they once were. Um, you start seeing Chinese demographics changing themselves. And today in China, more people are leaving the labor market than entering the labor market every day. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these changes were already opening up space for supply chains or production to move to other places than that sort of huge force that China has been since the 1980s or 1990s. Um, that was accelerated by COVID, right? People got worried about logistics and we had problems with logistics, which we just talked about. So trying to bring things closer to the final market, so particularly the US market for Latin America. And then we are seeing these real big geopolitical divides between the US and China. And then, as we all know, in the last several months between you know Russia, Ukraine, US, China, that there's more of these divides. And so producing closer is also attractive. So all of this, suggests that there's a real opportunity for Latin America. Uh, and the question is, how do they take advantage of it? Back to your question, I would say that, you know, the Biden administration has a, had this big plan to bring back four critical supply chains to the US. Those are semiconductors, large capacity batteries, pharmaceuticals, all sorts of critical minerals. But they will find what they will find and what Europe will find and others who are trying to do this is you can't do it alone. You can't bring everything back to your own country. Oh, and if your whole reason for bringing things closer is resilience 
and replication and being able to make sure your supply chains are up and functioning, bringing everything back to one geographic concentration won't give you that. You need some diversification. And so the benefit for Latin America is they are in this Goldilocks in the middle. They're not too close that you have you know, geographic concentration that leaves you vulnerable, but you're not too far away that you have the challenges that we've seen over the last couple of years in terms of logistics and the like. So there is a place for Latin America, a huge opportunity that they could take advantage of. Okay. Um, so are the reshoring uh, efforts of the Biden administration at odds with nearshoring initiatives or there, is there a way that they can work together? I think it's an and. Some things will be reshored and efforts of the Biden administration to move things closer will also allow nearshoring. Uh, and because some of the things that the U.S. wants to bring back, you know, there's three dozen different uh, critical minerals that are listed in the Department of Defense reports as critical to national security. Some of those the United States doesn't even have, and many are, are quite abundant in Latin America. So I think there's some areas such as that. Other areas, the pharmaceutical side, even the large capacity batteries and the like, yes, some can come back to the United States, but why not? have some resiliency, have some duplication across a couple of nations, across other allies and the like. So everybody has has some of this production, which makes it more resilient. If the reason is national security and resiliency, then having it spread out a bit actually uh, helps the United States meet those goals. And if some of the production or some of the mining and some of the refining that like are put in Latin American countries, it's beneficial for those countries. They too have access to those particular products or those particular minerals. And it brings economic growth, it brings jobs, it brings other kinds of activities. So I think that it, it sounds like nearshoring and, and, and reshoring are shades of the same dynamic or phenomenon. Is I think that... it is. It's bringing it closer from a distance, um, both closer in terms of geography, but also in closer in terms of values and partnerships and ties. And one of the things that we know uh, around the world is the United States does not have all that many free trade agreements. Um, we only have free trade agreements with about 10% of the global uh, GDP. Um, but the ones that we have, most of them are in the Western Hemisphere. Most of them are with Latin America. And so there, I do think we already have a platform or a basis for these connected supply chains within the region. They just haven't been taken advantage of uh, in the last few decades as much as they could have been. Understood. Is, is understanding that is there political uh, uh, support for a more extreme uh, uh, aspect of reshoring that it involves repatriation of onshoring activities from China and the Asian? Um, I know that we're talking about there's some give and take, but it, are there political forces within the administration or within the government in? Uh, uh, they really want to take a more extreme uh, position on reshoring. I mean, sure there are, right? And there are throughout the United States. And it depends, I think, on the sectors that we're talking about. So there are particular sectors, for instance, right now, um, working its way through the U.S. House and Senate is a bill uh, called the U.S. Competes Bill. One version is called that. And that involves some $50 billion to help reshore semiconductors. It also has a lot of other money for lots of other things. Now, there are many, including those who are, are working on this bill, who believe that should be in the United States. We should have control of those things and have it be domestically produced. Now, you, we can argue about or we can talk about the good and the bad of that and what that might mean. But, but there is that element. 
But the larger picture, I think, coming out of the United States and also coming out of Europe and other places where there's this return of industrial policy, there's this return of this idea that government should be guiding markets for safety, for resiliency, for national security reasons, for health reasons, for climate change reasons, for all these other goals that governments and societies have. I do think there is an opening there um, and just a reality that they will face that not everything can come home. And so even a small percentage, if it comes out of Asia or comes out of other parts of the world and comes closer to the United States, can benefit Latin America. Because as you look around, these are the places. Ge geographically, they're closer. In terms of free trade, there's already a setup for U.S. multinationals and other companies to, to have protections, to have sort of, you know, the rules of the road laid out there. Um, and many countries in Latin America already have a lot of capacity in these areas. They already produce pharmaceuticals. They already have critical minerals. Um, they already have sort of the basis for many of these areas that the U.S. and, and other nations have designated as really important to have a, a closer eye on. Okay. Well, uh, Richard Feinberg, uh, the Emeritus Professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego, uh, argues in his paper uh, that's entitled Widening the Aperture, Nearshoring, and Our Near Abroad, uh, that we are experiencing a multi-generational opportunity to seize the moment to create a greater Caribbean community, as he calls it, wherein the Biden administration's domestic economic plans would be extended to include the Caribbean islands, Central America, Mexico, Colombia, and eventually Venezuela in order to build resiliency, redundancy, and rapid supply responses into a US-centric uh, supply chain system. Um, do you agree with Professor Feinberg that uh, you know, the political and economic and social stars have aligned to create an opportunity for a fundamental change in the relationship between uh, the United States and, and the greater Caribbean community. No, I do see Richard and I have talked about this, and I think there is a huge opportunity right now. I mean, along the lines of what we've been talking about, um, I mean, the U.S. does have, you know, relationships. It has the CAFTA-DR trade agreement, so there's a basis there. It has relations with CARICOM in, in various ways. Um, but as you're looking to bring some critical production home, you look you look closer. Uh, and there, you know, obviously the Caribbean and Central America uh, are, are much closer than other places. Um, we've also seen even leaving aside, quote unquote, critical issues for national security, or critical products for national security. You know, I think there's a real opening for these areas for things that, you know, in the last 20, 30 years have gone to Asia, things like textiles and apparel and the like. I think some of these market forces that are changing, the rise of automation, the need for faster delivery, right? More turnover. You can't wait six months to get the, you know, the next fashionable t-shirt or, or outfit, right? You want things, things to be done closer. I think there is a benefit um, or a potential for the Caribbean and Central America to take advantage of that. You already have those industries. Uh, you already have ties with the United States. And, you know, it, it can benefit the United States as well, because we do know in global trade that when things are produced in nearby countries, for instance, if apparel is made in Panama or in other countries in Central America, the inputs are more likely to come from the United States or from other countries nearby than they are from far away. So when apparel is made in Asia, all the fabrics and the stitching and the threads are all pretty much made in Asia and then shipped around the world. If you brought that home to places in Central America, you probably would end up buying, you know, snaps and zippers and other things that are made in the United States or other nearby nations. So I think there's a benefit to be had there. 
Um, that will be driven primarily by the private sector as they make these cost benefit analyses. Okay. Uh, another question that uh, based on Professor Feinberg's uh, research, uh, he states in his white paper that the Biden administration has uh, signaled its intention to include the greater Caribbean community countries uh, in its climate change and sustainability energy plans. So accordingly, Professor Feinberg believes that the Biden administration may be inclined to include um, these countries, the greater Caribbean community and other proposed initiatives such as infrastructure development, deepening digitalization, education and, and workforce training and the construction of business parks that feed US led uh, global supply chains. So do you see a domestic political app appetite to include Central American and Caribbean countries in major US national economic initiatives in order to build and support uh, US supply chains? You know, we've started to see some initiatives there. And I think the most advanced ones are for Central America and in part related to the challenges of migration. Uh, so if you look at some of the plans that Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris has been guiding or others uh, in Congress have put forward to help with root causes addressing migration, particularly from Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala, you do see some of these issues with supply chains. And in fact, they've been working with a lot of multinationals in these in these countries, you know, the Walmarts and, and others um, to help out build out local supply chains, to provide more jobs and opportunities there um, that can anchor people and, and ground people there and frankly give them more opportunities to stay than to feel like they have to leave. So I do think there is an appetite here and there's some movement already happening here. Uh, and then we're also seeing some movement too, I would say in the US in supporting multilateral efforts uh, in these areas. So whether it's the Inter-American Development Bank or the World Bank or others, you know, there is a climate change element to a lot of the grants and or the loans that are being proposed and working their way through. And there, I do think the Caribbean and, and Central America are gonna be a big part of that because obviously, especially all of these nations, but uh, Caribbean nations um, really are at the forefront of the effects of climate change. Uh, unfortunately, in the Western Hemisphere, they're going to be hit the hardest by this. Yeah. Now, now, what are the policies that the Central American and Caribbean countries need to, to think about enacting in, in order to increase the likelihood that President Biden or other future administrations will, will include them in, in U.S. national economic initiatives? So there are lots. Um, there's lots the United States needs to do ourselves, too. So it's not <laughs> just, just one way there. But, you know, I would say for... A difference between the United States and, say, China is that the business that comes and goes around the world in the United States is, is the private sector. When you look at China, most of the organizations that go abroad are state-owned enterprises, so there's much more political direction. You know, Biden can't tell U.S. companies to go anywhere, right? This is something that the markets have to decide. But to make countries more um, attractive, to, you know, to entice that business, the U.S. government Local governments can enact policies, they can encourage business to come down, they can help build the infrastructure that these kinds of companies will need. Um, they can help train workers uh, so that they actually can participate and be productive in the, in the plants or the factories or the operations that are coming. Those are important things. And then I do think one of the biggest issues for multinationals and others that are coming to look to invest in other countries to put production in places is you know, transparency, accountability, um, that they will be able to guide their operations uh, in ways that are that are market based, right? That they they know if they bring in money, they bring in technology, they bring in expertise that 
um, that they can make the products that they need to make and then also send them out to the customers that they have waiting wherever they are in the world. Good segue to this question, which is what is the evidence that you have uh, that you have seen in your studies and research that uh, the Latin American and Caribbean region is capable of attracting companies and that companies are disposed to move to the region? So we have seen lots of companies come to the region. Uh, you know, we see some places have obviously attracted much more foreign direct investment than others. You know, Mexico has been one of the places that's contracted um, a huge amount of foreign direct investment and really advanced manufacturing. Um, so we've seen significant, we have a track record there. We've seen a track record. You do too see a track record in Central America and Dominican Republic and others, particularly in the apparel industry and textile industry where there is a strong base um, some nations, too, have, have attracted significant amount of uh, investment in back offices and services for, for all kinds of call centers, as well as other things like Intel has back offices and the like. So I do think there is a real diversified base that Latin America has seen, um, but it is shallow. It's not as deep uh, and as expansive as it could be. And so I think that is, as you look at this next five to 10 years, this is a moment when for lots of reasons and whether they're good or bad reasons, that's a different discussion, but for lots of reasons, global supply chains are doing a once in a generation shift. There's a fluidity to where companies are operating. And there's an inclination, at least among some, to duplicate their supply chain. So it's not just one that's global and also bring some to various regions and particularly regions serving the US market, which is still the biggest commercial and consumer market in the world. So all of that lays the groundwork for Latin America to be a recipient of lots of foreign direct investment, lots of local investment um, for you know, companies that are, that are run by, by locals, right? By people at home, it doesn't have to be just those coming in from outside, um, but that can supply these newly recreating supply chains. So this is a moment and the real question is whether Latin American nations through the policies they put in place or local investments uh, and the business sector in each of these countries takes advantage of it. Uh, well, in uh, speaking of the Republic of Panama, the effectiveness of Panama's incentive programs, its free trade zones and other efforts uh, to attract FDI certainly could be the subject of a webinar in and of themselves. But the take home point is that the Panamanian government has been for many years taking aggressive measures to attract FDI in conjunction with the private sector. And therefore, the Republic of Panama uh, has much to offer multinational companies seeking to nearshore. You know, given these programs and the history of economic and cultural ties between the US and Panama, uh, what do you see as the obstacles, if any, to Panama being the leading nearshoring destination in Latin America and the Caribbean? So Panama, as you say, has has lots of advantages. It has, um, you know, has a long history with the United States. It has an incredibly sophisticated logistical uh, systems and and base there. Obviously, centered around the canal that that has grown up. Um, it has, you know, no currency challenges in terms of people worried about uh, devaluations or the like. You know, I would think one of the challenges for Panama is is just the labor. Um, and, you know, do you have enough workers if someone's going to come in and bring especially something that brings that asks for a lot of, of positions, has a lot of jobs that is on offer? Do you have enough people um, that they can find those people? So I think there um, and I know the Panamanian government has worked with companies in the past, but I do think that openness of, you know, if people are looking uh, to come 
Yes, they need a physical place for their business. Um, yes, they need physical infrastructure and, and connections and the like, but they also need the human capital. And how mm -hmm. do you make sure to develop the human capital so that, uh, you know, that particular cities or the country is attractive? And as, as I look at the next decade, all those other things are going to matter, the logistics and, and the infrastructure and the like. But I do think the race for human talent, for people who have the skills to work in a very changing workplace, frankly, even if you're producing manufactured goods, you need very different people than you needed 10 years ago in terms of the skills they have. And I think that is uh, where lots of governments should be thinking is how do you create the workforce of the future that these companies are looking for? Very important uh, insights. Ernst & Young has analyzed the dynamics of globalization 2.0, which encompasses the concept of omnishore manufacturing, uh, which is distinct from reshoring or backshoring or nearshoring or onshoring or offshoring. Uh, in, the, in that omnishore manufacturing activities apply um, several of the former supply chain designs or strategies simultaneously. And um, so the question is, you know, decoupling from existing offshore operations is not cost-free for manufacturers who have already invested heavily in, in other regions of the world, in, in the Asian and China. You know, is omnishoring more realistic or practical than pure nearshoring or, or reshoring strategies? I mean, I think that's a good point. We have all these different names, and but they and some of them are repetitive, but they do show different processes on underway. There will be some areas that governments, the US government or European governments or, or China or others will decide are vital to be done in a place where they have more public control. And those you may see reshoring or nearshoring, where they really do pull physical assets out of places or, or leave them and move production to another place. And you know we've seen this, for instance, in areas where the US has put on export controls, where you can no longer send particular products between the United States and China. Um, so there, I think you will see those those things. But talk about more normal products, right, that aren't these high tech, you know, they're not semiconductors, or they're not particular intellectual property based um, things or used by militaries, dual use kinds of products. Um, there, I think what you will probably see is people and companies, um, when you talk about people, you're really talking about companies and their boards and their managers are you want to, you've already made investments, you want to make sure you don't lose, you get as much profit out of that investment as you can. But as you think about the next dollar that you're going to invest, as you think about expanding into different markets, um, do you leave them where they were or do you think about putting them somewhere else? And I think that is maybe this omnishoring. The idea there is, it's not that you abandon existing resources, but as we all know, you know, companies evolve, production ways of producing things evolves. And as you do that, where's your next dollar going to be invested? And that, I think, is where Latin America and frankly, all countries around the world are competing for. But where Latin America should think about it's not that you're, you're asking companies to leave other parts of the world and just come to Latin America. But as they think about the next place they're going to invest, as they think about putting another manufacturing line in, why not bring that to Latin America, even as you might keep other other you know factories or operations up and running in other places? And that too, I think, fits with this idea that these economies of scale in the past, the sort of labor-intensive, low-wage cost kind of production, at least in some sectors, is shifting. You have more investment in capital, there's more automation, and the time frame for shipping things around the world matters more than it did before. So that too. Uh, I do think companies in general and from their boardroom, leaving aside some of the other things we're talking about, 
they are finding that you can be profitable by dividing up those supply chains. And so as they divide up, you're going to look for a footprint, a geographic footprint in various parts of the world. And so Latin America has an opportunity in that. Um, IDB president uh, Claudia Caron has uh, advocated or spoken about reforms that need to take place within the region for Latin America and the Caribbean to be able to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, you know, he's mentioned, you know, reforms in digital economy and support for uh, SMEs, gender equality and climate change. Um, what are the, some of the reforms that you see that need to happen in Latin America uh, to be able to take advantage of this opportunity that we have? I mean, I think though those are all all real real issues that that Mauricio has laid out. I, I would say the more overarching one, frankly, is is the ease of doing business. Um, so that's everything from investing in infrastructure that reduces logistics costs. Latin America, unfortunately, it's pretty expensive to move stuff around a country and then around a region. So lowering those costs. It might, you might be able at the plant or in the, in, the, in the factory to make something in a really competitive way. But if you add another 10, 15, 20% to just get it to, to ports or get it to markets, then, then you're not competitive vis-a-vis -vis other places around the world. So I think that's one side. And then the other side is you know what uh, energy producers would call above ground risk, right? The political risk. You want to make sure that you know, in operating um, that you you have a stable environment, right? You can get your workers in and out of your factory, that those work well, that they're not uh, subject to, you know, threats or extortion or that sort of side, you know, the security side of stuff, um, but also that the rules of the game don't change uh, for businesses. Um, and so that you have, you know, access to affordable and clean electricity. I think that's the climate change side of things. Companies really care about what kind of energy they're using and are going to more so care about it over the next 20 years. So make sure that it's renewable, that they can they can access and tap. Um, but also it makes sure that, you know, when they come and invest, um, that they're pretty sure that the lifespan of those operations, um, they know what they're getting into and the profits that they calculate when they're doing their sheet on their pros and cons to come into a country. Uh, make sure that, you know, down the road, those pros and cons are pretty much the same, right? That they calculated, forecasted uh, the costs and benefits um, as as you know as they initially had and that helps for just not for those companies but but other companies that might come in behind them say okay it's worked out pretty well for this particular company and so others will follow uh if i'm not mistaken there are almost uh or approximately 30 inter-hemispheric trade agreements in the region in latin america uh in the, in the caribbean harmonizing uh you know those agreements with respect to transportation logistics um is a is a is a big lift uh, you know, what are the political and social and economic dynamics that need to happen within the region to make that possible? It is a big lift. And, you know, you look at many of the regional free trade agreements that are in Latin America, and while they have them, um, many of them have so many exceptions that they're not particularly robust. So you look at Mercosur, for instance, and there are hundreds of exceptions that really the things that would benefit from freer trade don't benefit from freer trade, right? The, the, you see tariffs very low on things that, that countries don't both produce um, in terms of those members. And same thing with the Pacific Alliance. It had a lot of effort and momentum, but it, it's faded in recent years. And a lot of it is political will, right? It is the desire for Latin American countries and their leaders uh, and governments to actually integrate. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as we look back and, you know, this is when I was writing my book and, and looking at the histories of regionalization over the last 40 or 50 years, 
you know, there are always divides, there are always conflicts and the like, but you see from the 1950s to today in Europe, treaty after treaty, slowly bringing the country together, the countries of the European Union together and giving things up in order to get other things. Um, you see in Asia, even with the divides in Asia in terms of, you know, languages and past wars where the countries fought each other and all of these things, you see them too come together and really form deep commercial bonds as well as other uh, global air supply chain bonds um, that have been to their advantage. And Latin American nations, for whatever reason, there's been a dream since the 1950s of regional integration. We have, you know, I think upwards of 20 different associations that were supposed to bring that together and, and bring the region together, but you haven't seen that on the commercial side, on the ground, uh, really come together. So we're, so that there needs to be some sort of political will. It needs to come from the leadership of the region. So let's click, uh, let's turn to climate change, green economic growth and, and government oversight. Uh, what are the uh, investments in infrastructure, labor training and other public policy initiatives that are needed to realize the potential of a, a green economy in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, to, to reduce the dependency on fossil fuels uh, and to employ renewable sources of energy? So Latin America starts from a great position, right? It's already one of the greener regions in the world in terms of the existing energy matrices and, and where, um, where it gets a lot of its resources already. Um, it is also a region that has abundant uh, potential for renewables. There's lots of sun, there's lots of wind, there's geothermal, there's other aspects there that they can tap into. Uh, and I think you know the challenges are twofold. Um, one of the challenges is to make the green transition, even though today, uh, solar energy and wind energy is actually economically competitive with fossil fuel energy in terms of cost per kilowatt and the like. Uh, most of the costs are upfront. So you have to invest all of that money upfront and then solar energy becomes basically free, but you need to buy the panels. So there's a financing aspect there. And so that is, you know, support from the rest of the world. Also, you know, setting up structures so that banks and, and other financing vehicles can happen in Latin America that allow that investment. So that's one of the challenges. You know, the other challenge is frankly political. And, and while Latin America has all of these advantages and already has a head start on so many regions, you know, many of uh, the biggest leaders, in fact, the two biggest economies are moving in the opposite direction. And so you have public policies in Mexico as well as in Brazil um, that are actually favoring fossil fuels, that are actually focused, uh, allowing, uh, if not encouraging, deforestation. So I think there you really need a change in policy direction um, if you're going to make this green future happen. And the reason to make the green future happen are a couple. One is stopping climate change, protecting Caribbean islands that, you know, are going to face higher seas and, and those sorts of things, sort of the effects of climate change on your own populations as well as the rest of the world. But I would say the other just self-interested nuts and bolts reason to push a green agenda and to push for a cleaner energy matrix is if you want to attract foreign direct investment, if you want to attract big multinational companies, most of the Fortune 500 companies have already made climate pledges that they're going to be climate neutral in terms of their production within the next 20 to 30 years. And so as they look, as we were talking about this fluidity of supply chains, they're looking where to put their next factory, their next operations. If they think they aren't going to be able to produce with a good amount, at least, of renewable energy, they won't be able to meet the promises they've made to their shareholders, that they've made to governments, to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the things that they've put in their financial documents, they won't be able to do it in your country. And so they won't mm -hmm. be able to come. So there's a 
a direct commercial reason to do it, as well as this larger reason to stop the planet from warming and, and stop people's lives from being so disrupted. Yeah, that your comment has a direct viability to the to the concept of nearshoring that we that we just talked about. Um, yeah, if you don't have green energy to provide, companies won't be able to come. Uh, on the on the uh, topic of the SEC, on April twenty eighth of this year, the the SEC charged Vail SA, a Brazilian company, with making false and misleading claims about safety in its um, uh, ESG disclosures. Uh, Vail's actions came to light when um, the uh, Brumarinho da uh, tailing dam collapsed, killing 270 people. Um, is the Vail case likely to become the first of many of SEC enforcement actions arising out of uh, ESG matters? I think the short answer is yes. Uh, I do think we have a more active SEC, much more interest in uh, making sure that companies fulfill what they publicly say they do. Um, we have, we've seen this obviously on financial statements and other things for, for many years, for decades, but we are seeing a move into uh, the SEC the ESG land. Um, and so, you know, there's a, you know, a note out by the SEC that's open for comment now, but they're trying to put in place actually uh, regulations there that, you know, the, the pledges you make, the promises you make that you have to meet them. Um, we're also starting to see it's not just on the environmental side, though I think that's a big part of it. You're going to have to have disclosures in terms of your risks, in terms of, of your overall um, emissions and the like. So chase, tracing your supply chain, that's something that the disclosure side, I think the SEC will be get much more actively involved in. Um, but we're also seeing them uh, get more involved on the SNG side uh, and along with, say, the U.S. Congress, where, you know, the U.S. Congress passed a law just uh, last December um, to ban inputs from uh, Xinjiang um, because of Uyghurs and because of forced labor. I do think you're going to see more activism on that side of the SEC, too. Right. So the safety side, the forced labor side the environmental side. And I will say the SEC is not alone in this. In fact, Europe, um, many European institutions uh, and regulations are further ahead in being more comprehensive. So as you think about country, or countries in Latin America and companies in Latin America, those that have European footprints or perhaps, you know, we've lots of direct investment from Europe, those regulations will be just as, if not more stringent, uh, watching more closely what's happening um, than even the SEC is. Uh, the SEC promulgated uh, recently uh, proposed rules on, on climate-related disclosures. That you <laughs> the common period has been extended to, to June 17th, so uh, we're still in the midst of that. Um, do, you, do you believe that the uh, climate-related disclosure requirements will survive legal challenges? Um, I mean, we'll see. I, I'll defer to you all. You're the lawyers, <laughs> but but I do think there is um, there is a strong push in the United States from the Biden administration uh, and the government, from um, the NGO community, from civil society, and from activist investors, right? And so there is a push there, and the you know trillion plus in in ESG funds that everyone from you know BlackRock and Carlyle and others run. So it's not just you know, particular politicians, it's not just NGOs, it is a larger shift that we're seeing there. So, you know, the sausage is always made through these back and forth and, and we'll see what really comes on the other end. But I do think uh, some sort of regulation is in the works and will be the way, as we look into the future, will be part of, of the US uh, regulatory future. Okay. Um, 
supply chain visibility uh, is another topic that's based on blockchain. Um, do you think that that will uh, bear out to have an effect, to be an effective tool to reduce the carbon footprint in future supply chains with more visibility? I do think whether it's blockchain or whether it's other platforms that allow you to see and calculate uh, your admissions, I do think that's going to happen. It's going to happen uh, perhaps because the SEC and others are going to mandate it. And in fact, Europe is already down this road. You see non-financial directives there that are asking for supply chain tracing and the like. So, um, so I think you will see it because of policy. I think you'll also see it because investors are increasingly demanding it. Um, and that's married with, you actually have technologies that allow you to do it. That's not quite as expensive. It's still going to cost companies money. It still costs money to collect that data and to process it and the like, but there are many, you know, startups or established companies. There's a lot of different services that I do think are in the works that I've, you know, heard people talking about and beginning to pilot and try. So I think as you look forward two, three, four years, you will be able to trace that without such a huge, huge cost. And once it becomes affordable, then I think everyone will have to do it one way or another. So let's get a question in from uh, Scott Siegman. Uh, Scott asked, China's ramp up was starkly propelled from accession to the WTO and the transition from British to China authority into Hong Kong. Uh, the transition was less advanced in the 1980s and the 1990s. Rather, the stage was set, the catalyst was put in place, and the dramatic increase in China trade uh, globally took place post-1999. Um, I think that's a comment more so than a question. Yeah. So, I mean, that that is the history. Well, you know, one thing I would say that's really fascinating, though, about, about China's role in all of this is, you know, we often in our discussions talk about China as too generous, as it's just China. Um, but, you know, as I did the research for this book, really what the United States or Europe, others are competing against is Asia. And it's these regional supply chains. Yes, China is at the center of them, for sure. Um, but it's really these regional supply chains that bring such strength and such competitiveness, right? So we talk about, you know, iPhones coming out of China and they make iPhones. It's like, well, they do. Um, but actually much of the value of that iPhone, some is made in, you know, Silicon Valley and, and the intellectual property and the like, but, you know, the screens come from Japan, the semiconductors come from South Korea, the microphones come from Malaysia, they come from all over and they come into China and are assembled and then sent out to us. And, and I think that's just one example. You can do it across all kinds of products, but it's one example of this integration, this regionalization that makes countries so competitive. And so China was coming into uh, its own in the 1980s and 90s as it opened up. In fact, the biggest foreign direct investment during the 80s and 90s was actually from Asian countries, not from the US and Europe put a lot of money in, but really Asian companies were the ones that went in, Japanese companies, South Korean companies, Taiwanese companies, all went in there um, first. And, and in fact, in, in a bigger way than some of the, you know, the more Western country companies that we think a lot about. So, so as we look forward, um, China is still there, but China has this larger community around it that it has reinforced with trade agreements like the like RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership with 14 other countries. So think about these things, or I think about these things as sort of regional strengths and particularly for Latin America, how do you find those neighbors? How do you find those partners that'll allow you to do what China has done over these last 30, 40 years? 
Well, we've covered uh, a, a lot of issues and your ability to uh, talk in depth and with expertise on so many different issues is, uh, is, uh, is really wonderful. The last question, uh, earlier this year in March, Panama put in place a new law granting nature the right to exist. The legislation uh, will come into effect next year, requires that the government, government's future policy respect the rights of Panama's ecosystems, including tropical forest, rivers, uh, and mangroves. Uh, Panama now joins countries including Colombia, New Zealand, uh, Chile, Mexico, Mexico um, which have granted uh, nature legal protection either through their uh, constitutions or, or their court systems. What will be the, the impact of such laws on climate change in the region? Well, we all hope it will help on climate change. Uh, and you know, there's lots of scientific evidence behind there that uh, keeping forests, keeping nature is, is part of that process. Uh, you know, I would also say that those types of laws um, many might think, oh, that's going to stop development. That's not going. That's going to stop economic growth because you're not going to be able to, you know, manufacture and the like. But I also think, as we look into the further into the 21st century, as you think about global economies, it's not just goods; it's services. Uh, and as countries uh, and economies become more wealthy, they become more service-based than physical product-based. And so, for Panama, for Chile, for Mexico, for other countries that are thinking about this. Think about how you grow your services, how you diversify your economy into providing more and higher value services. And one of those services that I think is a huge advantage for Latin America is tourism. Uh, and by protecting nature, you have a huge opportunity to expand that particular industry as well. Um, so protecting nature, it's good for climate change and, and we should be doing that all around the world, but it also can be good for the bottom line in terms of GDP growth and the like, because it provides a different avenue, um, but a very profitable avenue uh, for the national economy more broadly. One of my uh, concerns about uh, interviewing you is I was gonna leave more on the cutting room floor than I was able to actually talk to you about in our short uh, period of time, but um, we hope to have more opportunities as we follow you to, to hear your insights uh, and your opinions, one of which will be next week at the, the Bloomberg event that will be live streaming. We'll be following you uh, from Panama. Um, thank you so very much for your time. We're very appreciative, uh, Ms. O'Neill, and we will, uh, we will be getting a copy of that book as soon as it comes out. Great. Well, thank you all. Pleasure to be with you and look forward to being in Panama next week. All right. Take care. You take care, too. All right.